hopefully summarizes Scripture uh, so we can tackle many different doctrines. And recently we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed uh, as taught in the Heidelberg Catechism. Today we come to Lord's Day 21, which talks about the church. Specifically, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins? So I'll read Lord's Day 21 with you uh, now. And as I read it out loud, please remember that this is not just my confession, uh, but the whole church's confession, your confession as well. So you say it with me in your hearts. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word in the unity of the true church, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. This is our confession, uh, summarizing what God has revealed to us about him and his work for us in his word. Brothers and sisters, uh, I wonder this afternoon if any of you have ever gone to camp. When I was a kid, I always went to Campfire Bible Camp, which you might have heard of uh, back in Ontario. It's kind of like stepping stones here, I believe. And I loved going to camp. I would look forward to it all year. If you've gone to camp before, maybe you felt the same way. I loved playing sports. Uh, I loved making new friends. I loved singing ridiculous songs. I still love singing those same ridiculous songs. You can ask my family about that. Uh, I loved the spaghetti eating contests, and I, and I loved, most of all, a week away from my parents. How cool is that when you're a kid? Camp was the best. But there's one thing in particular that I really actually loved about camp. I loved that I would always leave camp feeling really, really close to God. Every day at camp, we would have chapel. Uh, we would have time for personal devotions and cabin pack devotions. As counselors in particular, you'd have time for devotions together each morning. And then at the campfire each night, you'd have a wonderful time to sing praises to God. And every time I left camp, I just felt on fire for Christ. And I loved that. And I was so disappointed when after a few days or a week or a month, that feeling would start to fade away. And so I'd like to start off this evening by addressing a misconception that I think we have to tend to have about our relationship with God. Or at least it's one that I always tended to have, especially back then. Uh, I think that many times, many Christians uh, can tend to believe that we have a close and intimate relationship with God sometimes, but not all the time. It feels as though God is near to us and we have communion with him sometimes, like right after stepping stones or right after campfire. Or maybe after going to a Christian conference, or maybe just after a long time spending time in the Word and in prayer, or hanging out with some Christian friends. At those times, then it really can feel like 
Jesus is right beside you, doesn't it? Uh, it feels like God delights in you and you delight in him. And fair enough, those are really good things. We often long to feel this nearness to Christ. And we can't have it if we're not reading his word and if we're not learning more about him, not uh, relying on his promises as we heard about earlier today. If we're not coming to him in prayer and continuing to go and learn from him and learn about him. And one of the greatest blessings that God gives us in this life is just that deep feeling of closeness with him, isn't it? But the misconception that we have is that we tend to think that when we don't feel this communion that strongly, that means that we don't have it. When we don't feel it, then we think this communion just doesn't exist. And when we feel weak in our faith, and when we're sort of stagnant in our faith, or we keep falling into sinful habits, then we feel far from God. Because we know how much God wants us to live godly lives, again, like we heard about before. We know how much God hates sin, how holy and just he is. But what we read in God's word is that even when we struggle with sin, God still loves his people. He still delights in his people in spite of our sin and weakness. In fact, he loves it when we repent and when we come to him for renewed grace. He loves to show mercy and compassion on his people. He loves to pardon us and relieve us and comfort us because that's who he is. How does he describe himself? We've heard this several times recently. He describes himself as gracious and compassionate and abounding in love. He's a merciful and loving God. And he's pleased to establish a close, lasting relationship with with us in Jesus Christ in spite of our sin and weakness. And so we'll see what that means for us as individuals and also as a church. As this evening, we'll consider Christ and his church. And we'll see this in two parts. First, we'll consider our relationship with Christ. And secondly, our relationship with each other. So first of all, our relationship with Christ. So brothers and sisters, I wonder if you can think of any pictures, hopefully from the Bible, of what our relationship with God is like. Because God gives us some absolutely stunning pictures of our relationship with him in the Bible, doesn't he? Things that we can maybe get too familiar with, again, like we heard earlier this afternoon, getting too used to the promises. We, we can't really grasp onto them. We don't really believe them. We can get too familiar with how God talks about his relationship with us. So try, I ask you to please, listen with fresh ears if you can. And just be amazed all over again at how our God, our holy and awesome God, how he describes his relationship with sinful people like you and like me. The type of relationship that holds strong even in the midst of our weakness and failures. So God describes us, for example, in his word, as his children. What an awesome picture is that. Really think about that for a minute. Imagine your parents, or imagine your kids if you have them. What a close relationship you have with them. It's a remarkable thing that God would consider you his little boy, or his little girl, and me, his little boy. And of course, as God's children, we can and do still wander away at times. And it's foolish and it's unfortunate. But by God's grace, he still calls us his children. The relationship is still there between God and his people, even at times when our faith is weak. Uh, Of course it is, right? God the Father reveals to us that he is so much better than our earthly fathers. But what kind of father would he be if he wasn't there uh, in our weakness as well? 
But when we're hurting and when we're struggling and when we're suffering, even when it's our own fault, we are still God's children. And in fact, that's often when a father's heart goes out to his children, isn't it? A good father, he, he, his heart goes out to his kids when they're suffering, even when they're suffering because of their own foolish choices. A relationship between a child and their father is such a beautiful and gracious picture of our relationship with an awesome, almighty, holy God. We should never forget that, just because we're familiar with it. But yet, God gives us another illustration of his relationship with us that might be even closer than that of a father and a son or daughter, even more intimate. God calls us, his people, his bride. It's difficult to think of a more intimate relationship than that. It's difficult to think of a more loving relationship than that, isn't it? I remember a chapel message from my seminary days that always stuck with me. My friend was doing his personal devotions, and he happened to come across just a number of times in a row uh, passages about God calling his people his bride, and especially about Jesus Christ describing the church as his bride. And this just so happened to be right before he went to his best friend's wedding. And he saw his best friend standing in front of the church uh, as his bride stepped up at the back of the church and began to walk down the aisle. And my friend, he could just see the love all over his best friend's face. And my friend was almost moved to tears, thinking that that is how Christ describes his intimate, loving relationship, even with weak people like you and like me. What a beautiful picture. And of course, we know Christ's love is actually far stronger, far better, far more pure than that of any sinful husband. What a marvelous picture God gives us of his relationship with us. What relationship could be closer than that of a loving husband and wife? Is there any relationship that's closer? I think actually there is. There's one. It's one that we just read about. There's one more way that Jesus describes our communion, our relationship with him. That's even closer than parents and their children. Even more loving than a faithful husband and his wife. It's what we just read together in 1 Corinthians 12. There Jesus calls us, he calls the church, his very own body. You can't get any closer than that. You can't get any more personal than that. That is the deep communion we have with Christ. And it's just incredible. It should knock our socks off. That's exactly what Jesus Christ wanted with you and with me. And we're too familiar with this idea. It doesn't blow us away like it should but that is our identity in Jesus Christ. And though conferences and Bible camps and devotions and uh, care groups, uh, we can grow into this and we can enjoy this incredibly close fellowship with God. But the truth is, all those who believe in Jesus Christ have this close communion with God, even when we don't feel it. Because this is the communion that Christ wanted with you and with me. It's what he set out to accomplish and he succeeded. He wanted to be close with you and with me. He wanted communion with you and me. And that's why he took the initiative of saving us when we were far off, when we were God's enemies. When we were God's enemies, he came to suffer and die in your place. When we were rebelling against God, he looked on us and loved us and wanted a deep, close relationship with us. And the picture he gives us is one of the closest possible uh, uh, images we could ever imagine. 
He says, you are my body. As Dane Ortland explains, we have trouble taking God seriously when he speaks of us as, God, as Christ's own body. But we should take this seriously. We should love this truth and hang on to it for all it's worth. Don't let it be a promise hanging up on the wall, a little box around your neck, as Reverend Shooten mentioned earlier. Just think about it. How does a head feel about his own body? He cares for it deeply, just naturally, instinctively. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 29, he nourishes it and cherishes it. He loves it and he cares for it. Of course he does. It's a part of him. And likewise, we should consider in particular, how do we care for not just any body part, but a wounded body part? We always say a care for our body, but not just when things are good, right? It's actually when things are bad, that's when we take extra care of our body. If a body part is hurt or weak, that's when we nurse it. That's when we bandage it. We protect it and give it time to heal, to try and strengthen it once again. Uh, that's our natural reaction towards our own body. The party part isn't just a close friend or family member. It's so much more than that. It's a part of us. And what about us? When we're suffering, when we're stuck in sin, when we're going through difficult times, what's Christ's inclination towards us? It's the very same. We actually get a powerful illustration of how Christ feels for his suffering people in the book of Acts, right before the conversion of the Apostle Paul. So Paul was still known as Saul at this time, and he was a fierce opponent of Christianity, as you may know. He was going around, he was tracking down Christians, he was persecuting them and even having them killed. But one day, on his way to Damascus, Jesus stopped Saul in his tracks. And what did Jesus say to this man who was persecuting these new believers, these weak believers, perhaps? Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? What a savior we have in Jesus. This is how closely he identifies himself with us, his church. Not just when we're on a spiritual high, but even in our suffering and in our weakness. Jesus Christ considers you and me, all believers, as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, believers all and everyone, as part of his own body. Not just in the good times, but also in the bad. That means that he's pleased when we draw from the riches of his forgiveness, the riches of his atoning work and his grace. Because when we're getting healed, Jesus considers his own body as getting healed. What a remarkable truth that is. Jesus loves to pour out good gifts upon you. Why would he not want to share every good treasure and gift with you? We're united with Christ, and so God doesn't hold back his gifts from us. We read in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God doesn't hold back spiritual blessings like forgiveness from his church, never. We're his children, we're his bride, we're his own body. Why would he hold back these good gifts? He never would. He's happy to pour out these blessings on us, especially in our times of need. And that's why we confess in our Heidelberg Catechism what we just read together. First, that believers, all and everyone, young or old, new believer or long-time believer, all, members are, are, all believers are members of Christ's body. And as members of Christ, we have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. 
And that's our relationship with God, our new identity in Jesus Christ. And we're called to grow into this role that we now have. We're invited to enjoy it by devotions and conferences and Bible camps and Bible studies. But we're never ever called to try and earn this relationship. How could you earn such a close relationship with Christ? You can't. He can only give it to you. And he does. And so we've heard a little bit about our relationship to Jesus Christ. And our response, I hope, to this can only be just, wow. What a Savior we have. That our God would be filled with such love and commitment to you and me. And we need to remember that Jesus would be willing to come and to live and to suffer and even to die horribly. Because he valued a relationship with people like you and people like me so highly. And it could only come at a great cost. Jesus needed to wash us clean with his own blood. But he had such a desire to save us and to pour out every gift on us. Uh, He had such a desire for us to be considered his body. And so his physical body needed to be broken for us first. What a savior we have. We're weak and poor sinners, but Christ is ours. And he counts us as part of his own body. And in him, all things are mine, we read in 1 Corinthians. We share in all of his treasures and gifts. And so the question then is now that we're so closely related to Christ, now what? And part of the answer, of course, is to just grow in this relationship. Just bask in the promises that we heard about earlier. Study God's word and just long to know Christ more and to live with him more. But there's uh, more to that answer as well. The, the question of how we can start to live out this great calling, living out our new identity as part of Christ's own body, uh, what to do with these treasures and gifts that we have. And that's our second point, our relationship with each other. Because there's a crucial word we've been using uh, before. It's that you and it's that me. Uh, each of us, we are a part of Christ's body. One part. Christ doesn't say that you are his body or that I am his body. Rather, he says the church is his body. And by his grace, you're called to have a role in that. You're a part of that. And that means that as members of Christ's body, we actually have this remarkable communion, not just with Jesus, but we also have this remarkable communion with each other, too. We can overlook that fact, can't we? This is the communion of saints that we confess each Sunday. Again, communion not just with Christ, but with each other. And this is important, because often in the the really individualistic culture that we live in, we're tempted to focus a lot on our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is crucially important. Please do focus on your own relationship with Jesus Christ. Realize that is a lot. But it's not everything. We can treat the church often as some sort of a a club or a concert or something. Uh, We come to church and we treat it it as a place where like-minded people just kind of uh, hang out. We're each here individually worshiping Jesus in close proximity to each other. And I'm here to worship God and my family's here to worship God and there are a bunch of other families and individuals around us too. That's how we can think of the church. But as we can see, there is something much deeper going on here. We're not just a bunch of individuals worshiping God beside each other. Okay? 
We are deeply and closely related to Christ. And we're closely and deeply related to each other in Christ as well. When we're here as Christians, we're not just here as a bunch of individuals or as friends or family members or strangers. We're here as members of Christ's own body. We're here as different people that God has looked at and chosen for himself. He'll never let you go. Uh, We're here as someone who Jesus Christ himself has ransomed and raised to new life. And now he says to you, and he says to you, and to you, and he, he says to me, that you are my brother, and you are my sister. And he also says to me, you are my brother. And the implication is clear. If you're Jesus' brother or sister, and I'm Jesus' brother as well, well then, what does that make us? We're brothers and sisters too. We are a family. And we're not just any family. We're God's family. And now we're called to live our whole lives like that's true. Because by God's grace, it is true. And that should radically change how we think about the church, shouldn't it? It's a good thing to reflect on this evening, especially. Because we're about to uh, witness Isaac and Deanna's profession of faith. And that is phenomenal. We're so thankful for the faith that the Holy Spirit has worked in Isaac and Deanna's hearts. And we're so thankful uh, that he's brought them to the point where they want to commit themselves to Christ. But they're not just committing themselves to Christ, right? They're committing themselves to his body, to the church as well. And this is a big deal. And you can tell by the family members and friends who have joined us here this evening. And it's so wonderful for biological families to witness this occasion. But at the same time, it's important to remember Isaac, Deanna, we're your family too. Uh, We're all uh, a family, and we should all remember this as we gather together each Sunday. I really love the way how Alistair Begg says it. Today and each Sunday when you come to church, take some time and look around and realize now you've gathered together with your forever family. Isn't that a beautiful thought? By God's grace, many of us do have Christian biological families as well. But many people don't. In fact, many people are rejected by biological families when they come to make a commitment to Christ and his family instead. And in a sense, this family, the church, is closer than any regular family. Again, Christ describes us all as parts of his body. We read that together in 1 Corinthians 12. We're not all the same, but we're all one. Some of us here, we're eyes. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet. Yet in Christ, we're all one. We couldn't be closer together. Not just one with Christ, but one with each other too. And so Christ tells us very clearly that every single one of us has a role. And because Jesus Christ isn't stingy, every one of us has a gift as well. Christ himself says so. Some of us have gifts of hospitality. Some have gifts of generosity some of comforting, some of music, some of teaching, some of leading, some of uh, childcare or finances or food preparation or, or so many other things. God has just lavished these gifts upon us, but he hasn't lavished them all on any one of us. He's given them in perfect measure to those all around us. And he calls us now, work together. Work as God's beautiful, perfect, but pretty imperfect family. 
And so often we look at the church and our faith individualistically. And that can lead to all sorts of problems. We can come to church and we can just start to think, what can the church do for me? How can the church encourage me? How can the worship service better suit me and my likes and dislikes? How can the church better support me? And so easily we can complain when we see that our needs aren't being met as perfectly as we think they could be. Or even when others' needs aren't being met as we think they could be. But brothers and sisters, is that how a body works? Is that what Christ is talking about here? Does a hand or a foot primarily look out for itself first? Not at all. If another part of the body is in trouble, does the rest of the body just sit by? Or does all of it instinctively jump into action? Because Christ flips individualism on its head. Out of love and amazement for Christ and for what he's done, we're called to start asking other parts of the body, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I support you? How can I rejoice with you? How can I mourn with you? How, how can I point you to our perfect head, Jesus Christ, who I'm connected to and you're connected to as well? Uh, like we said earlier, Christ sees us as his body. And what do you do with your body? Naturally, you nourish it. Naturally, you care deeply for it. When it's wounded, you move towards it to bind it up and heal and strengthen it. One of my friends pointed this out to me once. He said, when we see someone struggling in church, we can be tempted to say that the church should really do something about that. Or we're even tempted to pray, Jesus, why don't you do something about this? Don't you care about this church member? Don't you care that they're struggling? But when we do, we need to realize the question right away gets flipped back on us. Because what's the church? We're the church. And Jesus Christ, he says that we are his body. As one famous poem goes, Christ has no body on earth but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. And this is how Christ has chosen to work primarily in the world. And as Christians, we're called to care for all people, but even more so for those in the church. We care for other church members remembering, first of all, just how dearly Christ loves them, how dearly he cares for them. Knowing that Jesus looks around here and he thinks so many of us, all the members of him, he thinks every single one is to die for. And knowing that Jesus thinks these people are to die for, that just radically changes how we should care for them too, doesn't it? Knowing that Jesus cares for all these people as if they're his own family, his own bride, and his own body, that just transforms how we want to serve others, doesn't it? We read another staggering example of this in Matthew chapter 25. There, Jesus tells us that when he returns as judge, everyone uh, will be judged. And he will separate some people for himself. And what does he say he will say to those people? He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And of course, the righteous people, are they're just baffled. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's how much Christ cares for you. That's how much he cares for me. That's how much we should begin to care for one another as well. Jesus teaches that if you love him, and if you're thankful for his salvation, then you'll love and care for his body as well. You'll love and care for one another as well. As his body, he's given us many gifts, and he wants them, us to use them, not just for ourselves, but for the rest of the body as well. That's why, again, we read that we confess that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. And the other side of this is important to mention as well, because some of us have a hard time serving others. Uh, others of us, though, we have a hard time being served by others. But I, I think most of us, they're probably like me, we have a hard time actually with both. Have a hard time serving, have a hard time being vulnerable and letting ourselves be served as well. But we're not called to go through this life alone. Jesus unites us uh, as a body for a reason. And so just think about it. When one part of the body suffers, the rest suffers with it. Paul said this in our reading. We're called to suffer with one another. We're called to rejoice with one another. And if you think about that for a moment, well, that really presupposes what it demands from each of us as a level of vulnerability, doesn't it? We have to share what we're rejoicing in. We have to share our joys. But we also have to be willing to share our sorrows. Uh, I know someone uh, who had a, a badly damaged knee. He had it for many decades. And over time, he started having problems with his shoulders and with his back and with his neck and with his other knee and with his ankle as well. And so finally, he addressed the problem with his first knee. And he thought it was just the first in a long list of problems to address. But after helping the knee, the funny thing is, everything else started to get better too. They started to strengthen. They started to heal. Because the members of the body, they're so closely united. As members of the body, we need to help others. But what often can be harder is just letting others help us too. Admitting when we need a hand. There's a well-known story of this. Uh, it's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, probably not, uh, of an older Dutch man from a church. And for some reason, this older man, he started pulling back from church life. And he stopped going to services for a number of weeks. And then the pastor, who was an older Dutch man himself, he went for a visit with this man. And being two older Dutchmen, maybe it's stereotypical, but they just didn't talk very much. So the pastor was invited in. He was welcome to sit beside the fire. And the two, they just sat there in silence for quite some time. Eventually, the pastor grabbed the fire iron and he pulled a coal out of the fire and let it sit there. And soon the coal got darker and darker and eventually, not long, it fizzled out. Then the pastor got up, he went to the front door and grabbed his jacket. The other man followed him to the door and said, See you Sunday, Pastor. Weak, sinful people, as much as we tell ourselves that we are, weak, sinful people like us, 
aren't called to live on our own. Jesus loves us, and he's redeemed us, and for now he's called us to live in community with one another, serving one another, being served by one another. We won't always feel like helping. We won't always feel like being helped, but we need each other. I need you. You need me. At times, we all need to be exhorted. Who of us doesn't? At times, we need to exhort as well. At times, we need encouragement, don't we? At times, we need to be the encourager. Sometimes, we need to be comforted. Sometimes, we need to be rebuked. Sometimes, we need to do the comforting and rebuking ourselves. And Jesus doesn't just love you or me. He loves us. He wants to bless us. And a fundamental way he does it is by working through us to bless us as his church. In him, we have perfect forgiveness, and that is such a blessing. Because we know that so often we fall short of this. And we're so thankful that we're not the foundation of the church. The church has one foundation, and it's Jesus Christ, her Lord. We know that even though so often we fall short, even though so often we're weak, nevertheless, even in our times of weakness, we have a perfect, beautiful, lasting relationship, lasting communion with God. Not just after a conference, all the time. Not because of anything that we do, but only because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. Likewise, as Paul explains in Ephesians 4, we have a perfect, lasting unity with one another. Even if we don't feel it. Even if we don't recognize it. Even if we don't show it. But that is what Christ earned on the cross for us too. So often in the Christian life, as so often in the Christian life rather, Christ is the one who has done all of the work. And now he calls us to live out in lights of those benefits. We have, the unity, uh, we have unity with God and with one another. And so now this coming week and this coming year, let's strive to show this unity with Christ and with one another. Let's strive not just to show it, but also to feel it. Amen. Let's sing in response, hymn 52, stanzas 1, 3, and 5.